Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. I hope you are bearing up under these surreal circumstances. Now, I'm delighted that my guest this week is the author, journalist and columnist for The Mail on Sunday, Peter Hitchens. Peter was a guest on this show last year. It turned out to be one of our most popular interviews. He got something like 175,000 views. So I'm delighted that he's come back to talk to us specifically today about his views on the British response to the coronavirus crisis. Um, good afternoon to you, Peter. Good afternoon. Um, thank you very much for coming coming on. Um, I wanted to start by asking you uh, something which is, seems to have happened just over the past couple of days, uh, which is that suddenly the sort of tone and the emphasis of coverage in the media seems to have sort of changed onto much more overtly economic things. Do you, do you, do you perceive that? I think something has happened. I think it began actually last week uh, with Fraser Nelson's extraordinary article in the Daily Telegraph. In which was obviously the fruit of some very high-level briefing, expressing serious alarm at the economic consequences of the government's policy. Uh, I think it almost certainly expresses a very strong view at a high level in the government that things have gone quite badly wrong economically and they didn't predict what happened. The difficulty for the government is this. They have persuaded the public that the threat of COVID-19 is so great that the public have responded with far more enthusiasm than they ever expected. This is also something which Fraser pointed out. Uh, and indeed, are probably now more committed to the government's programme than the government themselves, who increasingly feel that if this goes on for much longer, uh, then we face something closely resembling national bankruptcy and want to find a way out of it. So now I think what's going on is that the public are being prepared for a retreat. And I don't doubt for a moment that that the government is briefing its friends in the media to ensure that that retreat is prepared for. This is how these things are done. I've never seen it more blatantly done, but this is how they are done. Um, is this a bit frustrating for you, Shoy? Because, I mean, you've you know been writing pieces for, for pretty much from the start of this thing, uh, pointing out that this was maybe the wrong way to go. Um, and uh, it seems that possibly that view is becoming if you like, more accepted now, because you pretty much did, you know, you got it in the neck, didn't you, for some of the well, things you I, I live under the question of Sandra, always to be right, never to be believed. And that's what's happening in, in this case. Again, I, it, it wasn't, it, it, there, was, there was no doubt about my position when we started, I didn't hesitate. I felt at the beginning that the government's response was disproportionate. Uh, not so much wrong, it's not wrong to try and prevent the spread of disease if you can, it's not wrong to take any rational action to reduce harm if it's within your powers to do so, but it just seemed to me that closing down a very large part of an economy which is increasingly a service economy uh, and therefore was particularly vulnerable to the sort of close down doctrine was very dangerous. I also thought, and this is a subject which has been pushed to one side, that the assault on, on personal liberty which was involved in it was intolerable and should not have been attempted by any government in a free country and also that people should have objected to it more. I simply don't think that it's the business of government to, to interfere in the private lives of people to the extent that's going on. But the economic thing just, just seemed to me to be quite obviously very dangerous and I, I said again and again and again there is no evidence that crashing your economy saves a single life 
whereas there is a great deal of evidence that severe economic damage costs lives in the near term and in the long term. And in fact, from the beginning, I used to quote Professor Sutrid Bakhti of the University of Mainz in Germany, who made this warning particularly about the danger of long-term isolation to the healthy old, uh, which has been a major part of this. I think an awful lot of, of old people in this country up to now living productive, interesting, uh, and active lives, confined to their homes, prevented from making contact with their with their friends, except through electronic means, are actually suffering in mental and physical health as a result of this in ways which will cost us greatly. And as for the, the economic cost, it doesn't take much imagination to work out what will happen to the National Health Service, which we're all supposed to value so highly, if the tax base collapses. You simply cannot afford to have a National Health Service on the scale which people want if you have a lower tax base. What will happen if, if more and more people are unemployed? It's an absolute key uh, factor in the development of ill health. Uh, it, it, there are so many ways in which this, this, this threatens health. And therefore, as I say repeatedly, this isn't a matter of money against life. It's a question of life against life. Both the calculations involve lives. And both, those in, both sides in this argument, I think, have to be assumed to be acting out of goodwill in the hope of doing good. I just don't think that the government are correct. I think they made a mistake in what they did. And I, and, uh, I, I suppose I should mind uh, that what I was met with when I first raised these criticisms was derision and abuse, but I'm so used to it that I don't really, if, if the thing now does begin to moderate and reverse, then that will be good. And I think it may have something to do with the fact that someone could raise a, a small banner of protest against it from the start, which in any free country was our duty uh, and, and something which, which we were absolutely entitled and right to do. When we are talking about this sort of now that this is being emphasised, possible economic consequences. This seems to perhaps have come from this new report from the uh, Office of Bu uh, Budget Responsibility that came yeah. out yesterday. Um, and these were quite horrifying figures, were they not? Um, I, I, I think I have, I have seen you talking before about your experience of being in societies which are in a slump. I mean, are we talking slump sort of territory here? Well, I don't, it may be so. I, the problem is, remember, before this started, the world, particularly the Western world, was already on the, on the brink of a serious economic crash. Anyway, the stock markets have begun to fall uh, very precipitately. Uh, the pound sterling was also falling. And there were a number of other indicators that we were entering some, a pretty severe recession, possibly on the, the scale of, of 2008, and possibly even worse. So yes, I think that the, the danger of something very bad is, is there. The problem is people simply can't imagine it. We've had so, for so long, uh, so much security and safety and prosperity that it is very, very difficult indeed uh, for people even to imagine the, poss the possibility that they might live through a period of, for instance, serious penury, very large scale unemployment, downward pressure on wages, uh, taxes, intolerably high even levied on the poorest and i think that that is a that is a great difficulty which we which people find a huge problem in imagining one thing actually peter uh, we've had these briefings that have been going on um and what i think it was philip johnson today pointed out that at the beginning it was said that actually of course it would be terrible certain people would be badly affected but that a lot of people, or most people indeed, would maybe get rather mild symptoms from this thing. Um, and he made the point that, in fact, 
you no longer have those reassuring voices actually in in briefings now is that something that you've noticed or? no i don't i don't think i do but i think actually the predictions have so far largely been borne out some people were always going to suffer very badly from this disease and have done and some were going to die and have done and are still doing and uh, this has always been the, the, a major concern that one would try to prevent it. But a very large number of people will, will have uh, the disease without symptoms or quite likely. Uh, I think that remains true. And I, I think the, the great difficulty here is in working out what is the proportionate response to what is going on. I, I find almost all the figures which are given are given without a context. And at the beginning of this, I, I, I was... I was shocking people quite often by stating the fact that 1,600 people die normally every day in the United Kingdom. This happens. It's not it's gr grievous for those involved and distressing and, 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 and not to be taken lightly, but it happens. People do die. And so when you look at the figures which are given for the numbers of deaths, you have to take that into context. Similarly, when you look at the figures which we're now beginning to see in excess of the normal uh, average figures for the time of year quite considerably according to yesterday's figures that uh, you can see that obviously people are are dying in considerable numbers there are bizarre quirks to these figures such as quite large numbers of them are not said to be necessarily COVID-19 related but that may be the result uh, of uh, of what seem to me to be extraordinarily varied ways of deciding whether someone has died from COVID-19 or not. I, I don't know. I, I've never, people have accused me of this, and it's not true, I've never sought to predict a level of death. Uh, I've never uh, I've never minimised the danger of the disease. What I have done is doubted in the extreme all the predictions that came from the Imperial College, the 510,000 prediction if we did nothing, the quarter of a million prediction if we did mild, uh, milder um, shutting down and the, I think, fewer than 20,000 prediction if we did a tight shutdown. I don't think that I, the, the last one is probably the most realistic of the three, but I thought the 510,000 uh, was probably based on, on how shall I put it, um, guesswork. And it, it, was, it was that figure which impelled the government into adopting the as it were, ultra policy of, a, of an almost complete economic shutdown, which it did adopt. And it, it was that figure, which, or something similar, which the Swedish government examined, decided was not something they wished to follow. And so they chose a more, a more moderate policy of encouraging social distancing and, and, and isolation where necessary, but not going for the almost total shutdown of the economy that we've chosen. The interesting thing is that Sweden, having taken what appears to me to be a, a moderate, thoughtful and rational policy, is, is constantly depicted in almost all the media as some kind of wild, eccentric outlier. Uh, and, and every report that's written from Sweden is written on the basis that any minute now, Sweden will be engulfed in hecatombs of death and will regret its decision. Well, maybe that's so. Who can predict the future? Uh, but I think that there's a, been a, a, an almost total dismissal of any thought that any policy other than the one adopted by the government is right and that uh, dismissal began to come to an end really over the weekend and especially yesterday when we began to discuss much more seriously than before the economic dangers of what's going on but, but peter why would there be that dismissal i mean if i mean we were talking presumably about the media i mean apart forget about no, that. I'm, 
not just the media; it's the it's the, it's the people. I I don't uh, I don't claim to speak for I never have, but I certainly on this occasion don't claim to speak for any kind of silent majority of people who who object to the government's policy. On the contrary, my experience is that the opinion polls, which which state something in the region of ninety three percent support for what the government's doing, are pretty much right. Uh, I have uh, I've come up against this among people whom I regard as intelligent and thoughtful. They've completely and utterly bought uh, the the government view that the, the the threat from the coronavirus is so serious that the only proper response was to shut down the country, and it's very very widely believed. And it's not I I observe social distancing sometimes even when I go to the supermarket I I get a scarf and wrap it around my face like a bandit. Uh, because I, it, it, I I feel it might comfort other people, not because I actually believe that this stuff will necessarily do any good, though I don't think it does any harm, but because I think if people on the wide scale do believe it, then it would be both rude, inconsiderate and arrogant of me to go around ignoring it. So I don't. I, I observe it. I recommend other people to, to, to observe it. Uh, but I don't feel myself uh, that the danger justifies it. And I don't. I think we are we are overdoing it. I think there is a there is a danger from this disease, but there's no evidence whatsoever from any of the countries where there have been outbreaks uh, that the sort of measures adopted by the British government will save any lives beyond those which are being saved in Sweden. There's a fascinating example on the continent of this. Two neighbouring very similar countries, both of which I know quite well, Belgium and the Netherlands. Uh, the Netherlands has adopted a a lighter touch and Belgium a much more heavy-handed uh, regime. Uh, both of them are suffering deaths uh, but in fact the one which is suffering more deaths is Belgium not the Netherlands. I don't think this is actually has anything to do with the policies it will be some other factor which we don't actually understand. I, there is nothing which which seems to me to demonstrate that this policy is effective in reducing deaths. If it, if it really were then there would be a much stronger argument for it but people have bought it. I think one of the ways of of getting people to support a government is fear. And I think people are very much very afraid of especially things they can't see. It's one of the reasons why nuclear power is so frightening. You can't see radiation. And with a virus, you can't see that either. And once you think it's there all around you and could strike and kill you without your even seeing or knowing it, once you feel that you might, and this is not just a, a wholly selfish thing of worrying about yourself, if you think I might take home a virus which will kill somebody I love, uh, and people will be uh, captivated by this and will take it very seriously. And I think what, again, what Fraser Nelson wrote was that the government was amazed by just how much voluntary support its policy got. The, the ludicrous heavy handedness of some of the police forces in, in, in trying to uh, make people stay at home and not go sunbathing and all the rest of it didn't reflect in any way the reality in the country. The reality in the country was almost everybody was very keen to observe this. There are very few people who weren't, and that remains the case. And this is this is um, say fear uh, is the basis of a sort of Hobbesian pact between state and people, where the people cluster around the skirts of government, begging to be saved from danger, and almost nothing will persuade them to stop. And it's for someone like me who was brought up very much to be a free person who was skeptical of government and, and, and never believed. Uh, what he was told without checking on the, the old Otto von Bismarck principle of never believe anything until it's been officially denied. To see people I know, educated, intelligent, experienced people, uh, taking this stuff as read as if it's all certain and true has been uh, actually quite frightening for me. 
I thought that I lived in a society of, of free, confident people concerned to protect their liberties. And I find I live in a country which actually longs to, 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 to swoon into the outstretched arms of Big Brother. Well, in that case, what changed then, Peter? What changed? Why? Oh, I, I mean, think, what is so different uh, about this one? I think a huge numbers of things have changed. This is the nature of the Cultural Revolution, which I'm constantly going on about. An education system, which was previously taught certainly an, an educated elite, how to think rather than what to think, has been largely dismantled. Uh, the, the enormous power of electronic and then social media to enforce conformism is always underestimated, but this is one of the things that they do. Very, very quickly, they create a mob feeling or they create a feeling of emulation. People, when color television first began to be important, people wanted to look like the sort of people they saw on television and sound like them, the same sense of humor, the same jokes, the same tastes in clothes and food and everything else, very rapidly became almost universal and the same tastes in thought as well. And social media have, a, have an even more powerful effect on this because, uh, especially Twitter, uh, but other places as well, I think, uh, those who do not fit in with, the, uh, with whatever is the agreed and accepted point of view uh, come under quite unpleasant attack. I mean, I, I can speak of this because it happens to me. I personally imagine this attack as being a few people uh, sitting in, in basements quietly converting fizzy drinks into human lard uh, while posting rude remarks on the internet. I'm not afraid of them. But other people actually think this is this is genuine force of emotion. And it, it, it is, it's a kind of thought policing and people are, uh, are afraid of it. And if you haven't been exposed to it a lot, and if you don't, if you take it too seriously, then it will, will indeed frighten people. And it, it can, it can destroy, we've seen. It can destroy people. The, it, it, the employers are frightened of it, and they will sack people who come under the, under certain forms of pressure. So it's, it is it is a conformist force, and I think those those are the two main things: the collapse of old-fashioned elitist education, which believed that you needed in a country a group of people who would stand up responsibly, think for themselves, not be told what to do, were prepared to say boo to a goose and say uh, to a government, "You might be wrong." Uh, that's gone, and, uh, and a hugely toughly enforced conformist idea of, of, of what everybody should think. Also, presumably part of that is that, uh, you know, when, you, when, you, when one talks about the kind of British, uh, you know, belligerence, if you like, about liberty and, and, and not sort of, and questioning authority, certainly, and if that's gone, then presumably this is because people don't really know about it as also, they don't know about the sort of traditions that maybe of Magna Carta and this sort of thing in Britain. They don't. I mean, I don't think David Caron, David Caron used to go on and on. This is an Etonian uh, Oxford graduate, supposedly with a first class degree in philosophy, politics, and economics, who apparently had, he kept on saying that, um, that we ought to have a British Bill of Rights. He apparently didn't know that we had one. And I doubt very much whether he's read it or knows the history of it. Uh, he claimed not to know what Magna Carta meant. Uh, maybe this is an elaborate Cameronian joke. I don't know, but I have a horrible feeling it might have been true. A lot of people don't know very much about what I was brought up to call the Glorious Revolution and the constitutional effects of that. They, aren't, they don't understand the importance of jury trial, the presumption of innocence. Uh, the, the police increasingly don't, and, and large numbers of people in the legal profession seem not to grasp it either. So it's not very surprising if, uh, if these things die. Liberty exists in the hearts of the people who have it. And my own view is that we're probably going to need to rewrite quite a lot of our national songs when this is all over. Rule Britannia, I think, especially needs a good rewrite now. 
What do you think? I mean, if you, what would you want to happen? Actually, if it, what should, what would be the uh, the course of action that we should take now? If it were up to you, well, I think it has. You know, it, you, we've done this thing of mobilising a, a, a huge and, and, as I say, fundamentally benevolent public opinion. People believe that they're doing good and right. Uh, by engaging in this. So it's going to have to be brought to an end slowly, gradually by a salami slicing process. So you take something, for instance, which a lot of people will welcome when it comes, and I think it will, the reopening of the primary schools. Uh, that, that, will, that, that will be the beginning, I think, of, of the transformation. And then bit by bit, various sectors, it's ludicrous, for instance, that, that supermarkets can open, but garden centers can't, and all kinds of other shops which are, which are not allowed to open. Uh, people are, are going to bit by bit uh, going to reopen. For instance, uh, cafes will reopen as uh, as takeaways. Uh, increasingly, I see this happening. I don't, but and the traffic will begin to come back onto the roads. People will feel less conspicuous about being out and about. I, I think it can only be managed gradually. And it personally, I would love it if it could be ended uh, very swiftly because of the damage I believe it's doing and the, and the good it's failing to do. Uh, but I, I accept that it's a difficult political problem for the government to march people back down the hill, having marched them all the way up. And they're not going to be able to do it easily or quickly. So I think there will be a, there will, there will, there will be a continued official shutdown with various bits and pieces of it being relaxed. We'll probably all end up, I, I shudder at the thought of this, uh, three, four or five months from now, are going to the shops wearing face masks and not because there'll be a law about it, but I would imagine a lot of shops will say you can't come in unless you wear one and, and other, and, and there'll be a lot of social pressure to do so and things like that. The the effects of it will linger on for a very long time, but the core of it, uh, the core of it leading to the shutdown of the economy will begin, I think, uh, to be dismantled piece by piece in maybe two or three weeks' time and, and accelerating from then. That's a guess. And that's how I would do it if I were them, because you can't, uh, you simply can't ignore the public feeling which you've created, and, and nor should you. What do you think? Uh, we've sort of alluded to the, if you like, the midterm future. But what do you think the permanent marks will be on our culture? Well, I don't know. I think that it's be very, very hard for us to continue to claim to be a people particularly concerned with our own liberty. I think relations between the police and the public already pretty bad will deteriorate. I think that a lot of people have seen the police in a, in a new light. It's not, none of this has surprised me, by the way, the behavior of the police. I, I, there remain, as one must say, there remain plenty of perfectly decent people in the police force, but there are the other kind as well. And there's a, the distance between the police and the public has grown greatly. Uh, since they ceased to patrol preventively on foot, and they they tend to view the public as civilians and themselves as sort of pseudo military professionals, and I think that it will not unless there's a really serious attempt made to rebuild public trust and good relations. I think that will. Uh, I I don't I th I think that what will preoccupy people will be the living in a, in a world which is economically so much poorer than one. We had before this began. Uh, I think people will be shocked when they discover just how I'd, people are going to experience such things as pay cuts. Really, something not experienced in this country since the 1930s. 
I can't see how the tax increases which will be necessary to sustain public services uh, will, will not affect the poor as well as the rich because you won't be able to raise enough money otherwise. I, I, for instance, would be amazed if the the long holiday on rises in fuel duty can be sustained. So everybody who drives a car for the purposes of going to work is almost certainly going to have to pay more. All kinds of travel is going to, is going to cost more. Foreign travel and holidays are going to be quite shockingly more expensive. And people are just going to be living in a bleaker in a bleaker state than they were before, and quite a lot of people will have no jobs. And people who spent years of, uh, of getting into debt and working all the hours that God sent, building up flourishing but narrow margin small businesses, uh, will have been destroyed by this and, and will, will have no way back. What will happen to them? I, I think that will be the most profound difference. And I don't know what the long-term political consequence will be of that, who, who will be blamed and what form that blame will take. But it worries me because it seems to me to threaten the stability of the state if you have large numbers of people who have, in effect, been deprived of perfectly reasonable livings by government action, which may well in time be seen to have been precipitous and mistaken. Do you perceive in any way any kind of political divide, Peter, in response to this between left and right? I mean, do you, have you noticed any particular consistency between the, the two sides? Not really. It's been interesting to see how many people in the, of the left who, what, six months ago would have regarded Al Johnson as, uh, as, as all kinds of rude words, some of which I won't repeat here, and would have treated him with contempt, rallying behind him. Uh, and I, I, I think that the, the, the performance of the official opposition in Parliament has been supine. In fact, that's one of the things which has struck me about this. All the supposed breaks and safety valves in our constitution designed to prevent foolish decisions and to, provide, and to prevent wild downhill rushes into, into dangerous policies, all of them completely failed. The opposition didn't oppose, Parliament didn't debate, uh, Parliament accepted the highly suspect COVID uh, coronavirus act uh, without even dividing for a vote, for goodness sake. The legal profession, where were they? All the people who were so ready to take the government to court over the European issue, silent over very considerable limitations on, on personal liberty, which are the business of the courts, it seems to me. Not a word. Much of the media, uh, silent or again supine, uh, civil society in general, uh, demonstrated that faced with a determined government wanting to impose measures of quite radical importance on the population, did nothing. So I think our, our own self-applause as a great uh, democratic state uh, it's going to have to stop a bit. I would like to see a re-examination of that, but I'm not sure it would do all that much good because you will still have the huge forces for conformism which helped to bring us about. I, I, I don't see a good future for politics in any of this. It, it makes me, if it's possible, slightly more pessimistic than I was before. And as, I mean, as, for, as for the churches, which again feebly gave in to instructions to, to lock their doors. Uh, I, all kinds of things. <laughs> I, mean, I, I tell this is a joke. The church that I attend is so sparsely attended uh, that we could easily stand 20 feet away from each other without, 
without any difficulty at all. But no, when when the church wardens went to the church authorities, they said, oh, we could, we could perfectly well. No, no, absolutely not. There was no flexibility, nothing at all. And I think the locking of the churches, that you couldn't even go in, in them uh for, for for prayer and thought and and and, uh, and solace uh, was an extraordinarily bad mistake and i think they will suffer from that as well i think people will, will feel that their their spiritual path has rather abandoned them during this period that will do damage too and to the extent that that matters it matters to me it does i know it's matters to a lot of other people but i think it's an example of, of how things failed just to round off, you know, when when one talks about the, the reaction of the British, uh, there's the, you know the, it's, it's disproportionate. Um, then quite often the answer you get back is yes, but the the whole world is in this position. The whole world is responding like this. I mean, you know, they, they look to America maybe particularly. I mean, well, it's not quite true. And it, you you look at I mean, countries which I, I have a sort of soft spots for, including Japan. Well, there's been a lot of formal passing of states of emergency, but in fact, the people have by and large been allowed to act responsibly on their own behalf, as British people have also done, but without without the oppressive uh, side of it. Uh, and I have to say that so far, uh, the outcome of this has certainly been no worse than, it, than what's happened here. And it's, it's dangerous to say before the whole thing is over. Uh, but there's certainly no current indication that Japan's policy has, has caused more difficulty and, and more deaths than our policy. Uh, the Netherlands, as I say, has been has used a lighter touch. It's kept quiet about it, uh, a lighter touch than its immediate neighbour and sort of twin, Belgium. And, has, and uh, I don't think there's any evidence that that has caused any great danger. And, and, uh, and there remains, as I say, the great example of Sweden, which simply has 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 done what grown up in maybe what grown-up governments can do. Now, if it turns out, and I have to say, every, every single thing I say about this is predicated on the understanding that I might be wrong. And if I'm wrong, then it's, it's far too important for me to stand around saying, no, no, I was right all along, you're right. If I'm wrong, I admit it. And I'll say, okay, so I'm mistaken. If, if the Swedish government finds that it was wrong and that, the, uh, and that its policies can, can be shown, to have produced more dangers to the population, then I have no doubt whatsoever that the Swedish government will alter its policy. And, uh, and that would be a sensible thing to do. But if, it, if that doesn't happen, and the Swedish government gets through this, Sweden gets through this, without uh, a terrible number of deaths and without trashing its economy, then that seems to me to be a reproach to those who behaved otherwise. That's why the whole, the whole Swedish issue is so important and why almost all the media coverage of Sweden in this country is, is hostile. And basically, say on the view that uh, any minute now it's all going to go terribly wrong, and uh, and uh, and and they're wildly eccentric. Well, look, Peter, thank you very much for coming on. How are you actually sort of like has has your how has your life changed at all? You know, now that we're in sort of this kind of lockdown thing. I mean, well, I I, I hate not being able to go to the office. Uh, my late brother used to say uh, that he worked in Fleet Street, so he didn't have to rely on the newspapers to find out what was going on. <laughs> Uh, I love all the and all the stuff that you get in the office that doesn't ever get into the paper, and I love the contact with colleagues and all the other. I, I I like I don't like living in London, but I love going to London five times a week and and, and sampling the atmosphere of the of, of, of the great capital of the, of the major country and feeling it in the way that you can't when you're you're far away. 
Uh, and so I, those are the things I, I greatly miss. I miss the, miss the routine. Of, I've worked from home before. I worked from home when I was in correspondent in Moscow and, and in Washington. I never found it very satisfactory then. I don't particularly like it now either. Uh, that's the main thing that I, that, that, that I have missed. Uh, it's been otherwise the, being curious. Uh, I, I wouldn't call them blessings, but there have been curious aspects of it all the time. I, I, some nights of this, I've lain awake listening to the economy collapsing, which is a nasty noise to listen to, uh, or, and, and, and you know, to, the, to freedom and dying, and thinking that this is, this, this is difficult. But then I go out, I live in Oxford, which is at any time of any year, one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And under these circumstances, and in this, this heartbreakingly beautiful spring, uh, is, of course, uh, more lovely than I've ever seen it, with the clarity of the air, the absence of traffic noise, which I hate. I hate motor cars. I'd, 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 I'd love to see motor cars disappear from the face of the earth. And they have. So for all that, uh, you, 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 can, you, you get a vision of how, of how different the world could be if it were differently organized. But at the same time, it also looks, as well as very beautiful, like a large, well-ordered cemetery. And there's something very dispiriting about what you know as and have lived in for more than half a century, a, a, a lively uh, and uh, a very active place, suddenly reduced to an, to an empty uh, museum of, of lovely buildings with the clear light shining on them and hardly a sound to be heard. Well, on that beautiful note, uh, thank you, Peter, for coming on again. Thank you very much. And, um, well, I do hope that Maybe in a few weeks or months' time, you'll be, you'll be back, and maybe in person. But uh, in the meantime, thank That's you very, very much indeed. Thank, thank you. you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, that's it for this week. So what you're saying is, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>